And we're live. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another very special episode of Fans of Power. With me, as always, is a partner in crime, Joe Amato. Joe, how are you? Oh, I'm ecstatic. I'm just so excited about doing this again and uh, talking with William Stout and finding out more things. It's like, I was like, I just, Sunday couldn't get here quick enough from last week with the unfortunate thing that happened and with the audio and video. I was like, oh, God, we need for this to happen. So, yeah, I'm super, super excited. Cool. Yes, and as Joe mentioned, Mr. William Stout has graced us with his presence again to uh, give us this uh, much-anticipated sequel to his first discussion. So, Bill, thank you for joining us again. Hey, hey, happy to join you guys. Awesome, awesome. I know we were, uh, definitely felt like uh, I know we had a good t- long talk after we, we lost the last week's episode of how crushed we were because we were just so <laughs> so just. I told Joe, I, like, I feel like a sad puppy right now. I, I just, I mean, it just, I can't calm down from this right now. I just wanted. to crawl up and just do nothing so it, it took a little while to get over that but we got it here it was well worth the wait so we're cool. ready so to go did, you are <laughs> did anything from last week get out on the air or on the net just, just like <laughs> it just happened to go up what what we did do and actually it was viewed like 40 some times even though it wasn't a full episode and huh. Huh. you know people were just uh you know they're they were asking you know yeah we're still gonna do it we're locked down so he's coming back so we're we're all good to go people have been asking about it well, cool. So, well, let's see. Um, so, so, should we begin where we we left off on the, the very first thing with with the big downer? <laughs> I guess yeah. Yeah. Why, why not? Let, let's let's go ahead and start with the downer. Why not? Okay. For people who okay. haven't seen the. Uh... There you go. Okay. So, so the uh, picture I'm about to show you is my design for Robbie's ribs and chicken. Let me make sure it's centered. It looks perfect. There you go. So uh, we took a real place in Lakeview Terrace. It was a real fast food place. And then I designed, I did this design, and basically uh, we built plugs to, to go in and cover the actual signage of the real place and to turn it into Robbie's Ribs and Chicken. It was called Robbie's because it was named after Robert Howland, my art director. Okay. And uh, I wanted it to be as, as all-American as possible, so hence the red, white, and blue color scheme. And uh, it's ribs and chicken. What, what's more American than that? Now, the historical significance of this place, though, the actual place is right in front of it. That's where Rodney King was beaten in the famous video. Oh, dear God. A, a really bizarre, arcane bit of uh, Masters of the Universe trivia. That's a horrible thing you definitely don't want to put together, but wow. Yeah, that's a downer. I mean, it's <laughs> certainly typically not something that's linked to Master of the Universe in any shape or form. Something like that. <laughs> no, no, not at all. <laughs> wow, it's yeah, it's, it's pretty bizarre. A bizarre coincidence. It was, it was. It was. I guess at the time, was that set when were? I guess the set was torn down, or, or was it used for anything else once you guys were done filming there? Oh, once we were done, I took we took off the plugs and repainted the place and restored it back to its original fast food uh, identity. Okay, so you guys took an already established fast food restaurant and just kind of built around. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay, got Yeah, it. to save money, we took an existing place, and I, I just redesigned the exteriors of it, but basically gave it a new skin. Did it need much of uh, a new redesign? I mean, like how much different was it from, you know, the before and after, would you say? Was it quite different? Well, the, the building was the same, obviously. 
but all the colors were different. The signage was different. It, obviously, it wasn't really called Robbie's Ribs and Chicken. Okay. Do you remember what it was called, by chance? Or? Uh, no, I don't. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, all right, that's no problem. Yeah. Was Cheers. Long. That'd be a cool effect. Well, it looks great. I mean, that design was great. So, yeah, yes. I, I've never seen it drawn like that. But I can only imagine. Is that something that they that uh, I, I guess obviously you have the final say because it looked pretty much what we see in the movie. I, at least I didn't see any, you know, drastic differences from it. Is is pretty much? Oh yeah, it, yeah, it, yeah. My my crew's job is to follow my designs. <laughs> okay, so it's not like you have somebody on the set is kind of arguing with you about it or anything like that. It's what oh, no. just out says is what goes. No, no, my word is law. <laughs> there you All go. Right. That's right. He is the law. I am the law. Yeah. So, so, to, so to lighten things up, though, we okay. This fella here. <laughs> Look at him now. Now, what are uh, fans? I mean, for the ones that aren't seeing this, what now? What is this exactly again? Here's what this is. Uh, I kept getting lists from Mattel of the characters that needed to be in the film and everything, and and their commentary on them, and they right. kept sending me this this one character named Cosmicky. I'm going, who the hell is Cosmicky? I, I looked through the script. I couldn't find Cosmicky in any of the, the script names or the character names. And I'm thinking, what in the hell? And so I, I drew what I thought Cosmicky might look like, and that's, that's this drawing here. And it was supposed eventually, to be the Cosmic Key, huh? Eventually, I figured it out. They were referring to the <laughs> Cosmic Key, but they, but they spelled it all as one word. So. I can that see the confusion, and you certainly gave him what you know. It definitely sounded like it was supposed to be. Yeah. So I love it. I've never heard that. That's got to be the greatest thing ever. Yeah, it was just one of those little wacky things that happened on the set. Now the What's actual their reaction to that. What was their reaction to that? Yeah, I mean, did you show that to them in the? In the well, of course they did. <laughs> <laughs> they must have cracked up. Well, that. I think that's probably when they got back to me and, they, and saying, oh, actually, we meant the cosmic key, not cosmicky. <laughs> fantastic. Oh, my. Oh, I'm glad you shared that. That's hilarious. I've, I've never seen that before. I feel like making cosmicky now. No. <laughs> so the real cosmic key was actually designed by Ed Eith, uh, E-Y-T-H, a uh, fantastic designer. He, he was – he, Ed is really skilled in doing tech stuff, and that's one of my weak spots. I, I don't really feel that uh, that's a strength of mine. So whenever anything really techy was uh, called for, I assigned that to Ed, and he always did a great job. Did the Cosmic Key go through a lot of different uh, or interpretations? I'm sure that's probably what Tyler was probably just going to say, too, if the Cosmic well, Key. Well, actually, Boss Film was hoping it would. Uh, the very first meeting I had with uh, Mark Stetson from Boss Film, it was to determine what stuff was going to stay in the film, what stuff was going to be out, what stuff would they have leeway as far as design goes. And unfortunately, the first thing they brought up was the Cosmic Key. And they said, you know, this is really complex. This is going to be very expensive. We need. To, it's going to be really difficult to make it do all these things. And I said, well, sorry, guys. I'm, I'm sorry this is the first thing you brought up, but it's got to look exactly like this, and it's got to do everything we say. And they were really pissed off. <laughs> they were pretty bummed by that. But unfortunately, that was just the first thing they, they brought it up. I mean, there were other things like I could have given a little slack or leeway, but this was the key prop of the film. So it had to function and look just as great as Ed had designed it. Now, was that something that, that kind of got 
pass? I mean, it was that like, was there any discussions about, can we make it different or was that like, <laughs> like that was the final look, like no discussion. Everybody was like, you know what, that works or. Uh, as far as I was, I was concerned, that was the final look, no discussion. Uh, boss film, they tried to say, well, what if we left out this or we didn't do this? Or we, and I said, nope, I'm sorry. This is it. You got, it's got to look exactly like this and it's got to do everything that is called for. So now, now did you have any kind of description as to what it does? Like, cause obviously when it opens up, you have this small spindles all spinning, you know, as a, is that something that you had input on or is that, uh, that was not a detailed description. Uh, I just let it go. I said, Ed, this is our number one prop. Do your best and make it really special. And he, and he did, he did a fantastic oh, job. Did they? It looked amazing. It still looks amazing. It, it's, an, yeah. it's, it's something most fans would all love to have like a, a movie replica prop that they could set up in their collector's room or something like that with the cosmic keys. Yeah. It is Especially a beautiful if function piece. like that with all the spinning bits and everything. That'd be so cool. I'd like that'd to have one. Awesome more. music too. You hit a button and it yeah. plays the tune, you know, it'd be awesome. It'd be yeah. fantastic. I'd pay 200 bucks for that. Now, here's an obscure bit of master's trivia is that I auditioned for the part of the guy in the music shop. Oh, really? Yeah. You were going to play Charlie? Yep. What happened with that? Wow. Well, with that, I was, I was horrible. <laughs> How can they turn you down? <laughs> it was awful. I did an awful audition. I, it was really, uh, they got the right guy, believe me. Oh, how could it have been but, that bad? You being the, the the music guru that you are, you know, I I figured that would just flow naturally. And well, know. that's that's how I got the chance. And and Victoria Thomas, our casting director, she was open enough to let me at least, uh, you know, do a reading with uh, uh who was it? Was it Robbie? Robbie McIntosh, uh, the 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 boy who who finds it. Oh, Robert Duncan McNeil, I think it's Robert his name. Duncan McNeil, yeah. Robert Duncan McNeil. So I, I got to, that's who I got to do my reading with. It was great. He immediately started improvising, which completely threw me for a loop because I had spent, you know, weeks memorizing my dialogue and suddenly that was just thrown out the window. I was like, uh, uh, <laughs> oh, I, mean, I know how to handle it now. Right. I, I've had a lot more experience with acting and stuff, but boy, back then I it was just, it was Bill, keep your day job. <laughs> <laughs> Did you at least try like a, an Alfred Hitchcock thing where maybe you were just in the background walking past or do something? Did you ever think about that or no? I did that in uh, Return of the Living Dead. I'm the bum on the sidewalk that the punks step over towards the beginning of the film. I got to go look look for that then. I got to go look at that. Oh, that would have been cool. Yeah. That would do that. That was, that was a, a weird day. It was seen with, uh, uh, with uh, uh, James Tolkien, you know, having, having an interaction with him, you know, Detective Lowe. That would have been great to see you uh, – interact with him it would have been definitely a a, a very completely different look because i i just can't imagine you playing the charlie character the way that he's portrayed in the movie i just kind of i just see that so now now i'm just gonna be wondering what that could have been like every time i watch well, my charlie was more of a more of a stoned hippie type of guy yeah who's also at the same time trying to con uh robbie into giving me the the machine the, the instrument it would have been even crazier. Could you imagine if you would have did like a cameo as one of one of those trooper designs that you hated and you turned against another trooper to start shooting them? Yeah. <laughs> Can't stand these designs. No. Well, speak, speaking of troops, because I was curious about this, did you, was it, was it just the initial kind of standard infantry troops that was a design you didn't like? Or what about the warlords or the uh, air centurions? Did you have any? Oh, I thought those guys were fine. It's just the, 
what we call the stormtroopers because they looked identical to the stormtroopers in Star Wars, except that they were black instead of white. Right. But the the, the warlords were were I I thought were you know as as a kid it was it was just kind of fun to see you got the cape and the the the, the laser rifle there with the um. Uh, the blade at the end—I can't remember the technical name for it. That—that's like on the uh, old-fashioned uh, rifles and things like that. But that was such a such an amazing design, and, and they looked so imposing. And uh, the air centurions too. The did you design the hover disc too that they ride around on too? That whole was that? No, that was uh, that was Ed Ith. He designed the hover disc, and he designed the the uniforms of those guys too. Okay. Gotcha. So, like you said, he did pretty much most of the techie type stuff then. Yep. Okay. Yep. Okay. Well, I, there's a question that, that Joe wanted to hold specifically to ask you, then I think he knows which one I'm talking about, which is, you know what I'm talking about, Joe? You know what? I, I was so flustered from last week when we didn't get to do it. I mean, which one was that? Because I, well, I have a lot in my head, but go, let's see if this, I can. This, this was something that people had asked us about, too, after the first interview was um, She-Ra. Oh, yeah, she that's what I was going to ask. Yes, yeah, that... She-Ra. I mean, well, what... I mean, were you really pushing hard to get her into the, sh you know, into the movie? Were you disappointed she wasn't in there? I mean, like, how did that all go? Because we've seen your design that you did of her, and just, uh, how did that all fall into place? Well, she was, she were, was in the original script, and so that's why I designed her costume, because uh, she was, for all, uh, it was intended that she was going to be in the film, but uh, when they started cutting major chunks of Eternia, they also cut her out, too. Just so completely. Is She-Ra in, in Eternia? Let's see if I can get this here. Oh, that's her, huh? Yeah. I've never seen... Oh, wow. Never seen that before. Look at that. What a shame. Now, was she going to be... Like you said, she was obviously going to be in the movie, but was it a pivotal role? Was it just like a slight part, or was she really going to have a main part with her brother, He-Man? It was... It was as large a part as Tila was. Wow, that's a pretty wow. good size then. Wow. Yeah. And so did she have, did you, you know, like how the last time we did, uh, you know, we did this and you explained you had a nice bio and background. Was there any specific type of unique bio or background that you, you know, wrote up for She-Ra? Uh, no. <laughs> oh, nothing different for her? Just pretty much he meant for her? No. Before I could do that, they cut her from the film. So oh. there's no point in doing it after that. Oh, that is unfortunate. Now, how, I guess before, how close to filming was it when when she was cut? Like, the the time frame before we, you know, the, are the sets being built? Is it all pre production or is it pretty much last minute or is it way in advance? Or since she was such a pivotal part in the script, um, let's see. Uh, it was during pre production, and it was probably about probably about I'd say two three months before shooting. She wow, got that close. So, so she hadn't even been cast. So. Oh, so there was no costume design, nothing made for her at all. Nothing. That actually physical costume design. Nothing was. Yeah, made. I did costume design, but no, it never got built. Not got built. Okay, okay. That's unfortunate. Yeah, because fans have always, you know, wondered what happened and why was, she, you know, why she wasn't in the movie. And yeah, I guess that's that's very interesting and very unfortunate as well. Huh. Yeah, I wanted her to be really hot and and be every bit as strong as He Man and. Oh, as she should be. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And, did and you there have was, anybody in mind back then of who you, when you're designing this, did you have an actress in, that you had seen before when you're no. doing the design? Or? No, if you look at the design, it's it's just a, a, a generic, beautiful woman, uh, blonde, big, had a curly hair, 
We're talking like big 80s hair because I, I, I'm a big fan. <laughs> of big like 80s hair. I love that look. It wasn't a mullet, but uh, <laughs> it would have looked. It would. She would look hot. Oh boy, would she have? Oh Lord. Unfortunate. Well, Tyler, go ahead. Hit a question before he hits us with another amazing piece of art, or are you hitting us with some art right now? Here's another. Here's another piece of art. This is doors to the caverns of Snake Mountain, and it's gigantic doors. Let's see here. Yes. Oh, Jesus. Yeah, that's that is gigantic. Are there people standing in front there? I, I can't. Yeah, little tiny people. Well, that does definitely show the the size of the the doors to Snake Mountain. Yeah, major scale. So we probably would have built the area directly around the actors, and then uh, the rest of it would have been a, a mat shot or a hanging miniature. And was that um again Snake Mountain was probably cut because of what uh, money issues, time yep. issues? But oh, okay. Yep. Budget. Wow. What could have been? I mean, the movie's still fantastic, but my God, to have all the extra stuff that you showed just makes us uh, cry a little bit inside. Yeah, it would have been fun. Uh, so this next picture is Skeletor's dining hall inside the tower room. Sort of an art deco kind of look. Okay. I like that that window with the moonlight shining through there. Man, all these pieces. That, that's another amazing one. Got that's any... a very beautiful gothic look for Snake Mountain, too. And it, oh, okay. it fits Skeletor's look. Like, I could picture him and his outfit sitting, you know, in that dining hall. It's It fits so perfectly. Well, I wanted to, to design each domain so that whether or not you knew where you were in the story, as soon as you saw it, you knew, oh, this is definitely Skeletor. This is definitely He-Man. This is I wanted uh, each place to have its own distinctive feeling and mood and look and, and color scheme. Here's another one. This is uh, Skeletor attempts to escape. Originally, at, at the end of the film, he, he does try to escape before he confronts He-Man. And this is my interpretation of that. Wow. Let's see what that is. Now, uh, is, is that like some kind of like pod, or, or what is that again exactly? So let me see here. So... So th this part here, this is like part of the castle. Okay. Um, and there's a, a sort of a, a bridge leading up to, to get inside the castle. Mm -hmm. And it's rain slicked, and he's he's running across it trying to escape. Oh, there. Now I see. Okay. At the first angle, I thought there was a castle, but I see. Oh, so there would have been something quite different instead of the, like, you know, ending that you, like you said, because of, you know, how the movie had to be kind of wrapped up quick, and you had to make that quick ending of just – Throwing them down a, a shaft. Yep. Ah. So we, we would have gotten like a, a like a, a jaw bridge battle with him and a skeletal probably with that scene set up, correct? Yeah. Yep. Oh man, gosh. Okay. Now, this one I, I know. Yeah, I, I think this is one of your favorites. This is uh, one of my uh, preliminary designs for the matte painting for the Castle Grayskull exterior. Yes. Oh, I absolutely that that is my absolute favorite. I just love. What, now, I know you said you're a Wizard of Oz fan. Was this intentionally, you know, to have like a, a touch of the Emerald City with that? It was probably more, done more subconsciously. It's In a way, it's sort of a cross between the Emerald City and what it is like to stand on a hill in Los Angeles and look down into the L.A. Basin. Gotcha. Oh, so cool. It's like he's just reaching into a magical bag of goodies, and I keep wanting to see what is he going to grab next. 
Oh, and this is I was still the tip of the iceberg. Stuff done still. Yeah. Like I, I went to see this stuff in animated features and movies. Like all this stuff is still it's so damn good. And like I still want to see every bit of the stuff used. And like you said, you are having a book that you're planning on putting out of all your your concepts and sketches and everything. Correct? For, for all my films, yeah. Oh man, yeah, we well, did well, actually do. Um, did, did either of you guys see the the thing on Jodorowsky's Doom? Uh, the uh, the documentary on the ill-fated. No, 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 I didn't see that because uh, they made a, a huge, gigantic book of all the designs uh, that Mobius and and uh, and Giger and Chris Foss and other designers had done. I, I mean, I would just kill to get a copy of that book. It's incredible. Well, we did something similar for Masters of the Universe. I printed twelve copies of a book, which is all of every single design I did for the entire film. It's, it's a pretty thick book and uh, 12 copies. I gave one to the director, one of the producer. I kept a couple. Uh, anyway, that would be a nice book. Oh man. We have to make sure you get that done. Oh yeah. If you put this out, people will buy it. But oh, what, what, what do we have now? Okay. Okay. This is uh, Skeletor, Karg, uh, some, some of his uh, heavy-duty bodyguards and a few people walking through corridors where there are gigantic pillars, and it's uh, the light coming through the pillars is sending these uh, big shaft, uh, big shafts of, of light across the floor. Oh, that's awesome! I love it. it you know, just William. I, I there's another thing that I know fans would go nuts for besides obviously buying the book that when you put it out trust me the word will be spread around and all masters fans will get it. But we eat up posters. Just those almost like how you're holding as big as air. I guarantee you if you were able to even get those into some printed forms of any size posters they buy it in just in droves. It's guaranteed. We love art. Masters fans, we love art as much as we love the mythology of Masters. So is that something you ever thought about, giving posters, like even after a book, doing a posters or something like that? Well, you know, there was an Art of Masters of the Universe book, and it's got an interview with me in the book, and I was ready and willing to supply all of this stuff for the book. And then Mattel said, well, if we print it in the book, then we own it. And I said, well, I'm not going to give you – I'm not going to give up my copyrights for free. You know, <laughs> no, that sounds so, like trust me. Yeah, if you no, if you do it under your own terms or something, trust me, and it's all yours. I mean, people still, yeah, they'll definitely buy it. So, yeah, if there's a way you could do that, trust me, we'll help spread the word. And I guarantee people buy I'll posters or books. Mm -hmm. Well, see what I'm wanting to see what you have now. It's like, good god, here's another uh Castle Grayskull exterior. That's a good one, too. I like that one, I like that one a lot. Now this one was. was there a, I'm a big fan of a period of art uh, called the Symbolist okay. Painters. It was around uh, 1900, and there was these group of painters. They did stuff that had mythological themes or fantastic themes and stuff. And one of the most famous paintings of that genre was a painting by uh, Arnold Berklin called Isle of the Dead. Uh, there's a, a there's an Isle of the, one of his Isle of the Dead paintings at the Metropolitan Museum in New York, I believe. And the image was so popular, he, he painted at least seven versions of it. And so this, this was inspired by that. 
Okay, you know, I have a question about, you know, obviously these different designs of Castle Grayskull. How did you guys come on a final decision of, you know, obviously the one that you used for that, you know, kind of like intro? Is there, I mean, was that your final decision or did they decide we like this Castle well, Grayskull? Ultimately, that was up to Gary Goddard, the director. Gary made the final choice because I gave him a lot of uh, variety of, okay, Grayskull could look like this or like this or like this or like this. Which do you like the best? And then he chose. Okay. Because that one you just showed, it kind of had a familiar vibe, if you will, at least to me, of Castle Grayskull. Okay, here's oh. Now, that one, oh, my God. Th this might be my favorite so far. Um, <laughs> I don't know about you, Tom. I'm enjoying this. I'm liking this look. Wow. All yeah, right. I like, I like this one a lot, too. And, oh, I was going to point out, it, it's it's got to be really hard to see on your screen, but right up here inside the socket, uh, I see her. the sorceress. Sorceress, yes. that's even cooler. Were you? What, what's the, okay, what's I guess the initial inspiration for that. Yeah, for that we'll zoom. Right Here's kind of a zoom so you can see it better. Oh yeah, and you can definitely so, see that there's somebody in there. I mean that yeah, yeah. That, that's the thing. Did um. I mean, did you wish there was a different final one that was used for the movie? Or did you just, you know, like you said, Gary chose the one he did. I mean, did you prefer any of the others that you were shown so far? Or Yeah, I like the ones, well, like the one I just showed. It was just I, a lot more dramatic and more detailed. Yeah, that, that's so far my favorite. I don't know if you have more of them, but that's my favorite so far. Okay, so, so one day uh, we're in the middle of shooting the movie, and uh, – I can't remember if it was the producer or somebody came over and said, okay, uh, so where's the costume for the contest winner? And I'm going, contest winner? What are you talking about? They said, oh, oh, Mattel, you didn't hear? Mattel had a big contest, uh, Masters of the Universe contest, and the winner gets to be in the movie. And I said, well, would have been nice if we had been told about this. <laughs> so I could prepare something or plan something. And they said, well, the kid who won it, he's here right now, and he needs to be in the movie. I'm like, oh. oh, really? That's that's like no notice whatsoever. So in, it took me about 15, 20 minutes, and I did this design, uh, which later got colloquially called uh, Pig Boy. His actual name was Mata Shai. And uh, and I, I did this design about 15, 20 minutes, immediately uh, color Xeroxed it, gave copies to uh, Michael Westmore, the makeup guy, and also to Julie Weiss, the costume designer. And uh, within a couple hours, they had the makeup and the costume and everything all set for this kid. And that uh, is amazing. This is the design. Look at that! That wait. So you just drew that up that quickly, and they made it that quickly just within hours. Is that what you say? Oh, God, I'm mind blown. That's that's insane. You know, because it's funny. Look at that. Yeah, and that's that's that's, so that's cool. Good. It, what's amazing to see, that's the thing. I remember, you know, it's a shame, you're right, they didn't inform you, because I remember going to the stores, and around the He-Man toy aisle, there was those little mail-in forms, and it said, mail it in, and you could be in the movie. And, <laughs> of course, we never made it in the movie, but uh, it's weird. So they wouldn't even tell you, and they had all that promotional material. That's that's kind of bizarre. It really is. It's weird. Well, at the time, Mattel was very, very, very disorganized. Wow, that's unfortunate. That's unfortunate. Is that due to because we've you know and obviously they showed up on set and told you about their kind of financial problems they were going through. Was that is that part of, of, of what was going on or, or why why it was so disorganized or were they just not, more 
I'm not sure if that was just the nature of the company at that time or if people have been coming and going and leaving and, and, you know, when that happens, there's, there's always confusion as the, the old regime disappears, the new regime arrives. Uh, there's, there's a lot of stuff that needs to be sorted out and it's confused. So, but actually I don't know what it was. I just knew that, uh, not the most organized company in the world at that time. I, I'm, I'm sure they're much better now. How far would you say into, you know, the shooting of the movie? Did you guys get the feeling something was maybe going to start going downhill to where possibly you knew maybe the budget wasn't going to be able to cover a lot of things? I mean, was it just bam, just slammed on you? You know, like, oh, the, the movie's not going to be able to get finished. You know how you guys got, you know, obviously how they shut it down on you. But, I mean, did you guys have a hint of something was just not right? I sure didn't. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> No, it's I, but you know, I'm the eternal optimist. So for me, Hey, everything's going great. I'm getting, I was on budget on schedule with everything. So I was a really happy guy. So I, I didn't realize that Canon was going through this gigantic death struggle at the time. What, so. I guess at what point of production is, is, are you guys in when you get word from Canon and Mattel's got to come in and fit the rest of the bill and all this chaos of the staffs get ready to walk and, just, I mean, is there a certain point of production that you can remember like, oh, boy? Well, well it was an interesting chain of events because, you know, at, at one point after I'd been made production designer, at one point uh, the Mattel people were walking through the offices of the art department and they're going, oh, man, that's going to be a great toy. Oh, that's going to be a great toy. Oh, that, that character, that's going to be a great toy. And I stopped and I said, gentlemen. You've hired me and my designers to design the motion picture, but you did not hire us to design your next year's toy line. Uh -huh. If you think you're getting this stuff for free, we need to talk. Okay. And they just got this look of terror and horror in their faces. And they actually threatened to shut down the film eight times. Mattel did? Yeah. They're trying to force us to sign contracts to give up all our rights to all these characters and designs. And uh, we banded together and said, no, we refuse. If, if we're designing next year's toy, toy line, then we get a cut of that because we don't design for free. And so, so they were really, really pissed. <laughs> but yeah. eventually we went out. I mean, I just I told my staff, I said, let's just keep working. We're still going to make the picture and everything, but uh, we'll stand firm and steady on allowing them to make toys out of them unless – we get paid. So, I mean, I guess that would be the other question is, how did it come to where just Gwildor, Blade, and Solrod were the only ones that were made? Did you guys come to some agreement and that was the only three? Or how did that work to why they were the three that were chosen? That was totally out of my hands. I, I just assumed those are the three that were chosen because they were not part of the line yet and they wanted to establish them as characters. Oh, okay. Yeah, because I didn't because know. I've been curious why, why Karg you know, is, is always, you know, it just seemed natural that he would have been a figure too. And, you know, did, yeah. was there no discussion as to why they didn't pick him or those decisions are out of my hands. I, I was there to design the movie. And if they wanted to make toys out of all that stuff, great. As long as they paid us. Did you, um, I guess, um, do you happen to remember or still have the, some of the designs that they were looking at when they were thinking like they want that as a toy and they want that as a toy? Oh, I, I've got everything I did for the film. So including all, all those illustrations that they were wanting to make toys out of. Yeah. Oh, wow. We need this book. Yeah. yeah we need, 
So the other funny story, which you, you've probably heard if you watched the Canon documentary, is that uh, this was a joint production between Mattel and Canon Films. And uh, I, I forget what the total budget was. I think it was probably around $37 million. And uh, so Canon told Mattel, okay, you're responsible for half of it, and we're responsible for half. So you guys put up your half first. So they did. Mattel did. And when the money ran out, uh, Mattel said, okay, it's time for you, you guys to put in your half of the budget. And Canon said, nah, we don't think so. <laughs> so just, Mattel, just like that? They just were, they were that so blunt about, no, we're not doing it? <laughs> so Mattel is like, oh, my God, if we don't pony up the rest of the money, we're not going to have our film. And so Mattel had to come through with, with the rest of the budget because Canon refused. Canon didn't have the dough, but but – Mattel didn't know that. Uh, and like, like you said, it still wasn't enough because then that, you know, that day came, that dreaded day where they just shut you guys down and yeah. wow. Yeah. Is that Manam and, and your coming to set and shutting down production in front of everybody and telling you're done? Or is it somebody they sent down there? Or? I wasn't on the set that day. So that's a question you ask, have to ask Gary. Okay. But did, you have, did you have a whole lot of uh, dealings with them when you know while, while you're doing your job? Like, did you with Mattel? Yorman Globus. Oh, oh, with Menachem and Yorman, they were very accessible. Yeah. I, I tell you, one of the most bizarre things that has ever happened to me on a film happened to me on Masters of the Universe. I got a, we were in the middle of production, we were shooting shooting the movie, and I got a call from from uh, Menachem's office. Uh, we need you at a meeting on Sunday at noon. And I'm, I'm already going, Sunday? Man, nobody works on Sunday. This must be really serious if they need to see me on Sunday. Wow. So I had no idea what it was about. So I show up Sunday at uh, Canon Films, and uh, Elliot Schick, the line producer, is there. Gary Goddard, the director, is there. And they've got three seats facing – I think the guy we were talking to was uh, Ronnie Yakov, the number three man at Canon. And Ronnie's facing us. I'm sitting in the center, center chair. Uh, Elliot is to my left. Gary is to my right. And and Ronnie proceeds to ream Gary for what he's been doing on the film. And then as his eyes cross over to Elliot, they stop on me. And he, he gives me a big grin and a smile. And then he continues and he looks over at Elliot and he reams Elliot. And then he looks back at me and gives me a big smile. And then he reams Gary again, looks at me, gives me a big smile, reams Elliot again. And I'm really uncomfortable because here's my two bosses being reamed right in front of me. And all I'm getting is, is a, a nice big grin from, from Ronnie. He's not saying anything to me other than smiling. And <laughs> I think that was Cannon's way of saying, hey, you're the only guy here that is on time, on schedule, and on budget. We're really happy with what you've been doing. That's we're the two guys, we're pissed. <laughs> That's what I was going to say. It's like, wow, at least, I mean, yeah, you, I guess you didn't get yelled at, but they brought you in to give you a nice show, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. What a moment that must have been like. Afternoon, man. That was like just so surreal. Based on your own personal experience, because obviously Electric Boogaloo, everybody has their opinions of of, of the duo. What, what is your, 
looking back at it as opposed to knowing them back then, what what is your viewpoint on them? Are they as crazy and 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 eccentric as everybody seems to paint them, or are they they just misunderstood, or what is your I guess your oh, viewpoint on them? Oh, all of the above. <laughs> <laughs> These guys were crazy, but you know I really miss them. I wish Canon was still around today. I mean, it was an extraordinary company to work for. It it fulfilled a real need in the film business. Uh, they were similar in some ways to Roger Corman in that Roger Corman and uh, Menachem McCannon, if you were a young filmmaker, you could get in to see these guys and pitch them and on the spot get a yes or a no. You didn't have to go through this whole chain of command like you do with the other big studios. If they thought it was a viable project and they said yes, you get your shot to make your film. Now, you wouldn't get much money. That was the deal going in. They, they were making low-budget films. There was no <laughs> pretense that you were going to make a you know, a $60 million or $80 million film. There's no way. But you get your chance to make your movie. And so Roger Corman launched the careers of, of Martin Scorsese and, and Ronnie Howard and Jack Nicholson, so many people in the business, and myself included. He bought my first screenplay. And... Menachem was was the same. You could get a meeting with Menachem and you get a yes or no on the spot. And if you got your yes, you got your shot to make your film. And there isn't an entity like that in the business today, allowing uh, young filmmakers to have that, get that opportunity. So no, it's the same too, because they, they, that's and it has such a big fan following because the movies were so. It was a vast variety of movies. Obviously, the documentary oh, yeah. shows just how how. Uh, how big, how big a, a variety they, they gave people to. And, and of course, kids who grew up in the 80s were all raised on the uh, the Chuck Norris films and, sure. and the Van yeah, well, films and the, the crazy fantasy films they did too. So Yeah, Chuck Norris was the bread and butter. And I had a, a bizarre experience in that uh, while Menachem was here in L.A., he decided he, he would direct again, and he directed another film. He directed Delta Force with Chuck Norris. And because he's the president of the company and he directed this film. They actually had a black tie opening for, for Delta Force. So, <laughs> hey, I, I was totally up for it. So I got dressed up in my tux, you know, for, for a Chuck Norris film. Norris action. Oh, that's so cool. You know, and <laughs> uh, you see the film, they had it at, at one of the big Hollywood theaters. And then afterwards, everybody went to the, uh, an after party, which was at the Canon film offices and Canon Films had this huge building with five levels of parking. And on the five levels of parking, each level had a different restaurant. And they were making, you know, free food for everybody who came, uh, you know, top chefs and stuff. And the mayor of Los Angeles spoke at the thing because at that time, the most films in production by any of the major studios was Warner Brothers. They had six films in production. Canon had over 60 films in production. Uh, I've, I've heard 86, actually. So, boy, they were generating a lot of dough in L.A., which is why Mayor Tom Bradley was there to, you know, congratulate Menachem on directing Delta Force. But they were there for a while. They were a really powerful entity in L.A. in the film scene. And I miss those guys. Yeah, they were they were crazy, but they were also funny, and they were also really passionate about making movies. These were not accountants. These were not bean counters. These were guys who actually made films, and they were also producing them. Uh, I guess at the same time, you know, that, that Masters is going, 
are you, are you guys aware of the other two big budget films that you know over, over the top of Superman four? You know, are you guys thinking is this are we head is this not irrelevant to you guys or or just is it on the radar at all that you know they're spending an awful lot of money on these other big projects? Are we going to have to worry about our budget too or? Um, I wasn't aware of that. I mean, I was aware of those films being made because I was I was keeping track of all the different canon projects that were going on, and I saw that they were they were starting to up the budgets, and that didn't worry me, but it should have, because they were not used to making anything other than low budget films, and so when they started to venture into that higher priced arena with masters of the universe and the Superman film and, and, you know, giving Stallone all that money for the arm, arm wrestling movie. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, if I, if I had been smarter, I would have been aware that, uh Oh, <laughs> something's going yeah, do you on. Think this would have still worked if they had spaced these movies out a year, a year apart, as opposed to all released in the same year. Yeah. I think it was an element of too much too soon. Okay, I, I thought that too because obviously Superman Four speaks for itself with all the the problems that went on with that too. But I, I, I feel like Masters was you guys managed to even if the budget was low, I certainly couldn't tell, and not until and even to this day, I'm like nothing looks cheap in the movie. No, nothing looks like cut, corners were cut. The uh, the suits, the sets, the all the Earth stuff. I mean, uh, here, here, here's something I want to ask you too. And I and did you? I, I assume you, you designed Gwildor's, uh Home. Yeah. Did, did you not? Actually, uh, um, most of Gwildor's hut, the interior, was uh, designed by Joe Griffith. He did a beautiful job. And what we did is uh, we took uh, technology from the Rose Parade floats. And after Joe had done his initial designs, we took chicken wire and sculpted it in the form of, of the way the interior of that hut was going to look. And then we shot it with this hard with this foam that when it dried, it hardened like rock. And then, but you're still able to carve it if you needed to. And so that's why that set has such a nice organic feel to it. Oh, so here's a, it looked awesome. I'm going to show you, here's an early version of, of Gwildor. Oh, I like that. I do too. So, I mean, this, were you picturing them when you did this as being a little, like, more older and wiser or something? Obviously, well, yeah, the older, wiser wizard, you know, who's eccentric and absent-minded and is constantly inventing little things and stuff. What is that um, little smoke piper? What, what's that coming out of his back? Is it, what is that? Is that little smokes? and? Yeah, he's got a little uh, backpack. It's, it's almost like a, a tank, and there's uh, vapors and smokes coming out of that he's also i noticed he's holding the cosmic key yeah and it, it looks like it's the final design it appears to be yep and you said you weren't letting that design go and thank god you didn't because that's a fantastic design for that cosmic key but oh wow i've never seen that god oh, i like that touch of guido's ear being bent down that, that that's that's yeah. a nice little touch you threw in there yeah i like i like to take make little surprises or something symmetrical and then you, you tweak it a little bit like flop the ear so oh gives a little more interest yeah, I, I like that touch. That's that's really cool. Oh, wait, what they got next? Here we go. With okay, uh, this is all stuff that uh, Tony Gardner, the great makeup artist, built for me. And these were all plants from Wildor's garden. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. You notice the uh, stormtroopers, when they come up to the they, door, they, door, the door, the door, the door, they, they trash that, that yeah. little garden that he's got out in front. 
quick little crazy question. Did he actually name all these unique plants or, you know, cause. No, <laughs> okay. no, no, I just, I just drew these up, colored them and then uh, Xeroxed it and, and gave a copy to Tony and he started building all this stuff. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Cause it looks spot on as to what you see in the movie. It's not in there very long, but it, it's yeah. pretty recognizable. Oh, now one of the interesting things, I don't, I don't know how many people know about this, but, uh, we went through a number of location searches. At first, uh, Eternia was going to be shot all in Iceland. Huh. And so they did a reconnaissance tour in, in Iceland. Unfortunately, I was not the production designer at that time. As soon as they got back, that's when Jeff quit and, and made, and I was made production designer. So I missed out on the free trip to Iceland, which I would have loved. <laughs> and which, you know, they ended up shooting tons of Game of Thrones in Iceland because it's such a phenomenal location. So I'm really sorry we didn't get to do that. So then they were thinking, okay, Iceland, that's going to be too expensive. How about Idaho, Craters of the Moon? And so I did go on that location, Scout. And there's actually a, a, a lava cave that we were going to shoot in. And here's the design I did for the that. Now, is, is that is – that, um, this, this, this is an existing location. It's a big pile – it's a big pile of lava, and then there's a hole in the roof, and this is all lava back here. And so I was going to put a crashed spaceship on there. Okay, now what was that going to, uh, I guess, this area, I mean, in the spaceship, what was it going to pertain to, would you say? Any specific uh, event in the movie or what? I don't remember now. <laughs> was, was, that, was, that, was that possibly going to be, because uh, I, I know there's references that, that the, you know, He-Man's parents came from Earth or that there was another another tie into Earth. Would that have been like the first ship from, from Earth to have crashed on Eternia there? or hey, that, that works for me. Okay, hey, there you go. Tyler just wrote some history for Masters. There you go. We were like, sure. You should you know, be writing screenplays, man. You know, it's funny. He just quickly mentioned his parents. I, I didn't know if that was ever brought up. Was King Randor and Queen Marlena ever even thought of for the movie or no? No, no, not at all. Not at all? Okay, so let them out. Just He-Man. Okay. Okay, so here's uh, a couple of my designs for the, the Skeletor uh, Stormtroopers. The actually the one, the the one in color is called I, I call it the Elite Guard, and uh, the big guy I call him Mofo. <laughs> Mofo. <laughs> that is a that's that a big badass. Yeah, that uh, is yeah, a big. You definitely can see why 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 Bill would be upset for his designs not being used because that Elite Guard is is that's an ass kicker. Those are really cool looking. Yeah, I, I thought it was a more interesting look than just knocking off Star Wars. That was now that is a different design. Yeah, definitely looks nothing like anything we've seen. So here's an early version of the Gray Skull th Throne Room after Skeletor has taken it over. Oh, that's yeah, cool. Yep, that's pretty spot on to what we know. Yeah, that, definitely. Yeah. Glad that stayed, you know, that design. Yeah. What's he got next? He got the bag of tricks. Here we go. Here's an even earlier design of, of that same spot. Yes, That's nice. What What is that? Is, is I mean, is that the throne or big, is that? Um, it's a big giant floating crystal. And is that the Eye of Eternian back of it, obviously, open, yeah. I think? Or, okay, okay. 
I wanted to ask you about the the origin of the Eye of Eternia. Like, mm-hmm. what what is your your you know your your story for designing that? Well, I, I always like that. I love uh, the way uh, camera lenses work, and and actually that's what we use. We got a huge camera lens, and uh, use that as that was our miniature. When you see it at opening up, that's that's a real piece of uh, mechanical equipment. Because it would have been too expensive to actually design a sort of a spiral opening thing. I mean, if the technology is already there, why not use it? I, that's okay, good. And I'm glad, Tyler, you just mentioned about the IEV attorney. Because this is a question I've always had. I don't know if this is something, anything that you had to do with, with certain things being written. But mm-hmm. as we know, you know, when the eye attorney, when it opens and Skeletor gets all the power and becomes, you know, God Skeletor, if you will. Yeah. Now, is this the same power that's within He-Man? You know, the, the same, or, I mean, I guess what I'm getting at is, you know, if the eye of attorney opened and He-Man got that power, would it have changed him? Or is this the same power that He-Man has within him? I guess it's always had me question that part about the eye of attorney and that power. I think it would have changed He-Man because to me in, in designing this place, uh, my philosophy is that that power is neither good nor evil. It's what you do with it. And so let's see if I got it. So if you notice in the, in the film, everything that's above ground level, those that's has, they're what I call the space gods, those big giant sculptures. Right. Everything down below is like gargoyles and, and nastiness. So that's an indication of, yes, this is the seat of all power in the universe, and it's either good or bad depending upon how you use it. Skeletor is deciding to use it for bad, and so when he gets bathed into that thing, he says, I am as a god. He's basically basking in, in an extension of his existing powers, which were, were bad. If He-Man had been caught by the same thing, he would have been made more powerful, but he, he would have stayed good. It wouldn't have changed his personality or his point of view or, or his direction of his life. Now that's, uh, that's something I, I, yeah, I was, I was very curious about uh, that we, we briefly touched on last time. And, and obviously we, we get that one panning shot when Frank Langella comes into the front and you see just how far down do the mat uh, painting extensions all the sta- is that is that your design like to, to, you know with all this there's so many stairways and levels in that one shot to like when you you kind of look down as he's kind of coming into the throne room is that yes. that that's all you're still what we would have seen had they filmed yep. that yep oh, man it was so cool looking to so to have seen all the sword fights and stuff like that because the ups and downs and overs all that stuff down there it was just i just love to pause and look at that scene of just all how much depth is in that. I've always been a big fan of map paintings. Mm-hmm. You know, even in the Wizard of Oz, when you look in the background, you see all these beautiful mountains and landscapes, and like yeah. there's, there's so much stuff like that. I want, I want to know more about it, and it's just, it just leaves the so much to be desired of, of how much hard work was put into it, and all the details, and just so many things that you notice, and and that's a testament to your work in designing all this stuff. Well, thanks. Since I knew a big sword fight was was going to happen there, I went back and I looked at. Well, I have two big heroes as production designers. One is William Cameron Menzies. He was the first person to actually ever have the title of production designer, and that was for Gone with the Wind. And uh, the other guy is Anton Grote. Anton Grote was the guy who designed all the Errol Flynn swashbucklers. So I went back and I watched all of Anton Grote's films, Captain Blood and the Seahawk and stuff, 
and I made notes because I wanted this to be the ultimate setting for a sword fight so that the actors would have all kinds of stuff to do, overs and unders and stuff they could swing on, stuff they could hide behind, uh, steps that they could go up. And so that that's what influenced uh, the design of, of that set. So that we would have seen it like, because I, I I know like certain certain moments in some of the Arrow Flynn uh, uh, movies where they're fighting up up a staircase and going down right. a staircase with you know broadswords and things like that. So that's that's kind of what we would have gotten probably had the, the sword fight been extended. Yep, yep, absolutely. And another interesting so, bit of of uh, Masters trivia is the inside of Julie's house is. Uh, the inside of the house that was built for a Cary Grant movie called Mr. Blandings Builds His Dream House. Whoa. <laughs> that house still exists, and it and it's on. It was on the Paramount Ranch, which was a, a movie ranch uh, where they shot all kinds of stuff. It's where we shot uh, the scene where they they land in Earth, and they're in the there's like a little pond or a lake puddle. Yes. That that's all there, and. That had been used and owned by Paramount for a long time, and some accountant at Paramount one year forgot to pay a certain fee, and so the entire place reverted back to Los Angeles County being the owner. So I was able to get that house for, I, I think it was like 10 bucks or 100 bucks, something like that, unbelievably cheap for a location. <laughs> the production was so, so happy with me. <laughs> for I can imagine so. And and I had also I had used that house in the prior film I had done for Canon, which was Invaders from Mars. That that was the Invaders from Mars house in, when we did the remake. That's a cool yeah. tie-in. But originally it was built for for a, a Cary Grant movie. Hmm. Very very cool. Um, tying back to the uh, the throne, I guess this is something I, I've I've maybe I've had this uh, conversation with Joe or um, somebody else, too, about the hieroglyphics that you put in the Grayskull throne. Oh, sure. I always, I always thought that was such a... Speaking oh, of it. Shoot, speak of the devil right That's there. That's freaky. And can you describe, like, you know, what we're looking at again, just so it'll pop up on basically... Okay, so this is the throne. It's the seat of power to all the universe. And uh, it is ancient. Uh, no one knows who built it, when it was built. It was millions of years old. And uh, it's a combination of this interesting sort of brown stone and and iron lots of iron that has uh, been set into the stone and you can see the iron is rusted over the years and, and parts of it are dripping but uh, this is where you want to go if you want to rule the universe I guess so so yeah, that's the thing with you know again with that and the eye of Grayskull obviously that's why the sorcerers now did you ever have ideas of you know, if they were going to try to go in more deeper mythology of other guardians before the sorceress that have protected that Eye of Eternia, because I'm seeing that now as, you know, your guys' version of the power of Grayskull, which yeah. He-Man and the sorceress protect. I mean, was there other ideas of guardians for that place, too? If there were, I, they didn't tell me. <laughs> I was just, yeah. I just went by the screenplay that was handed to me. Yeah, now, yeah. You were mentioning the lettering. Um, one of the things I like about this design is it is a combination of sort of ancient and high tech. Uh, there's, I, I used uh, computer circuit boards as my design uh, jumping off point for some of the stuff that's in here. But also there's, there's lettering, there's ancient lettering. And I designed an entire alphabet 
for this culture. So oh, that wow. whenever uh, my guys needed to do something from Eternia, they already had that stuff to pull from. They could just use the letters that I designed for the alphabet and then plug them into the designs. That's a fascinating yeah. thing that you just you just dropped on us here. Yeah, because I was going to say that. I was like, were these hieroglyphics something that you just took from other cultures? But now that you said you made that, that I mean, that's absolutely bananas that you made a whole entire alphabet. You're going to have to – I'm telling you, when this book comes out and people get it, you got to put all these details about the hieroglyphics, the bios behind the characters, all that, because us fans can geek out and, you know, write to each other in your special Eternian language. <laughs> okay. Oh, now this this one was one of my favorite sets. Uh, the problem we had is we needed a set for the communications room, but we had very little money. I uh, very uh, I can't remember what the budget was, but I thought, wow, that's that's almost no money at all. So how am I going to solve this problem? Because I want to have a I want to have a cool set, and so I thought, I know, I'll design a basically a one wall set, but I'll bend in. Uh, oh, like a, a quarter of the left and been in a quarter of the right. And so it looked like you're, you're glimpsing at a room that's sort of hexagonal or octagonal in shape. So this is that's this design oh, here. That's spot on. That's so also the, the thing is this screen here, we were going to do a rear projection on this screen and showing uh, – was when Skeletor is zooming in through the universe and going down to planet Earth, going down to California to zoom in on where where uh, He-Man currently was on Earth. And the problem was that uh, behind the screen, there wasn't enough throw behind it to, pro to do a rear projection because right behind that screen, oh, just three feet from it is a wall. So I designed it like this so that we could shoot from high above the actors could work. The actors could work down in here without breaking the screen, and you could front project it, which is what we did. And then I designed it so carefully that nothing extra was built, and uh, they had to use the lens that I chose to shoot it with, which is a 50 millimeter lens, because I knew that would give me the exact look that I wanted. And so and that's spot on what's in the movie. I mean, regardless of budget, oh yeah. that, that's that's exactly what we see. Really close. And then we wanted these machines here, too. Well, obviously, we didn't have enough money to, to build one of these machines, so I took an existing crane, a camera crane, and then just designed a shell that fit around it. So all the mechanics were already in place, and we didn't have to worry about that. We just needed to uh, build the skin that fit around this thing. That's beautiful. That is so cool. Yeah, it did work perfect. <laughs> Definitely worked perfect. Now, did you have ideas? Oh, wait, go ahead. I'll, I'll first, I'd like to see your next thing, and then I'll ask you a question. Oh, next thing? Okay. Yeah. Uh, this one we called Chunko Town. And that's when a whole section of Earth comes to Eternia. Yes. This is when we, we cut the Cadillac in half. and. <laughs> <laughs> I love these pictures, and I love that scene. That was always one of my favorite scenes. You know, it was just always so cool because, you know, not only, you know, seeing them get back to Eternia, but I remember as a kid, I felt so happy in a way for Lubick, it, meaning not that, oh, you know, eventually he stays there, but the thought of, because Lubick through the whole movie is wondering what is going on. Yeah. And, and just seeing parts of 
earth now on Eternia and his reaction. I love that. And I'm so glad you did that for the movie. That just worked so perfect. Yeah, it was, it was fun. That part was fun. Okay. I got, I got one more here. I've got tons more at my studio, but I just brought, you know, about a dozen pieces. Just a okay. taste of a future. This is a Eternia throne room celebration. And this is a, actually, this is, even though it says throne room, it's actually an exterior scene. And it's a gigantic celebration on Eternia after uh, He-Man has triumphed over Skeletor. And there, there is a throne, but it's, it's, it's sitting outside. But I'll, I'll show you this. There, let's... That's cool. Very, very beautiful. Now, that would have been cool to see the celebration outside. The celebration inside, don't get me wrong, is still fantastic, but you had to see a little lush. Yeah, we got Very huge fountains. I had huge fountains in here, lots of lush greenery with, with tons of flowers, uh, flower petals floating through the air, big, huge wow. banners and ribbons and stuff. Here is the, uh, the throne with the big disc behind it. Mm -hmm. Another beautiful piece. Jesus. Well, you still got for your studio? So, oh yeah, I I I did over a hundred designs for the film. So, yeah, so I've got I got the rest of my studio. I just picked a bunch of stuff that I thought you guys might not have seen or or I thought were interesting. Well, we definitely find all that stuff interesting, and you know, to I guess elaborate more on a possible possible book. I mean, is this something that you definitely are going to do? Is this just you know an idea? Is there you know, like oh, it's, it's definitely a book I want to do. Uh, I'm a lot of people have asked me to write an autobiography, and that's that's a little too overwhelming. So my thought was, I know I'm going to do a whole series of books. It's going to be a multi-volume autobiography, and each book will be on a different aspect of my career. So the first volume has already come out. That's all about my murals, my mural work, and what I was doing in my life while I was painting these murals and how those came about. I'm going to do one on that's all my music related art. I'm going to do a book that's all my film designs. I'm going to do another book that's all my entertainment advertising designs, my movie posters and stuff. And so each book will focus on a different time of my life. And, and in the text of the book, I'll talk about what was going on in my life at the time. And peppered throughout will be all the designs I was creating. And do you have, uh, like, is there an idea? like time frames of like each book, like, you know, every six months, every year, couple years. I guess the reason I'm saying is uh, I know Masters fans will look forward to this. And again, you would have no trouble at all having this sell because the fandom is just starving and biting for anything Masters right now because, you know, there's not much things that exist that's new. So to get something like what you would provide, which would not only be concepts we've seen before, but also new ones and in very good details and color, but especially you adding, if like you said, even adding bios and backgrounds to every character, like you, you and know, funny stories too. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just, I'm saying I, I, this would just be insane. I mean, so do you know when fans could possibly have an idea? You know, cause we'll spread the word. Me and Tyler will spread this like a virus. Absolutely. As soon as it, it looks like it's going to become a reality, I'll, I'll get in touch with you guys and let you know. Well, we'll yeah, we'll be I've got, books, I've got books in the pipeline coming out before that. I'm working on a big sort of overall career book for Inside Editions. And then I've, I've uh, my regular publisher, uh, John Flesk, he wants to do a book collecting all the comic art that I've done. And uh, 
I think that one is that's coming close to completion. Uh, one book that is almost ready to go now is all, all my music related stuff. So that's all my album covers, CD covers, band posters, band flyers, stuff like that. Okay. And um, did you say you, you have a book out already? Did you say you've already, have, uh, the book on my murals, that's the first volume that's okay. out. All right. So it's, that's still available. Well, for, for it's called William Stout prehistoric life murals. You can, you can buy it on my website. You can buy it through Amazon, whatever. And it's your website, williamstout.com, I assume? That's it. Yep, williamstout.com. And if you buy it from me, then you get a, a drawing in the book. Okay. Oh, that's awesome. All right. Well, I think me and Tyler might have to go to your website. <laughs> well, I already have. I've, I've already beat you to it. I've already purchased from his website already. So. Oh, you bought that mural? Jesus, I, I, don't, I knew I, no, I, I bought a book to his uh, tribute to Willis O'Brien. Uh, yeah, it got sent to you a couple of days ago. Yes, yeah, I got notification about that. So I'm very excited to, to check that out because I – I know that description of the uh, um, uh, the um, the giant insect scene, and that's in the description. So that was something I was very interested to hear. Well, well, that's a big chunk of that book. I, I really did my homework with that. We're talking about the spider pit sequence, which is one of the greatest lost pieces of film ever made. And in uh, when Peter Jackson redid it, you know, he did his own version of it. Uh, it's it's available as an extra on the King Kong uh, Blu-ray and DVD. But uh, he found five creatures that he thought definitely were in that sequence. And I expanded it. I found 24 different creatures that were considered to be in the spider pit sequence. And I did illustrations for each of those. So that's in the Willis O'Brien book. Oh, awesome. I can't wait. To, I just can't wait to dig into that book. It's so much. Do you do interpretations of the dinosaurs and everything? As oh, well? sure. Yep. So um, in fact, right now I'm in the middle of doing uh, volume two, which will have uh, giant behemoth, uh, black scorpion, mighty Joe young. Oh, cool. Yeah. I have to get that too. Yeah. I have it been uh, ready by March 1st because we're going to have a, a show honoring Willis O'Brien at creature features in uh, Burbank, California. Are they going to be, uh, you doing like a panel or anything like that or, uh, um, we haven't done the final plans yet. We're going to have an art show, which, which will consist of all these different local artists' interpretations of O'Brien's creatures, probably a lot of Kong pieces. And at the same time, a, a really good friend of mine, uh, Frank Dietz, he's finished uh, this incredible documentary on the influence that King Kong has had on filmmakers. It's called Long Live the King, and I'm all through that. And it's a fantastic documentary. It's, it's it just won uh, an award at a film festival for best documentary. It's just great. And it's really funny too. It's really entertaining. Some of the people he interviewed are comedians. And one of my favorite scenes is uh, there's a comedian being interviewed and, and they show a clip of right after Kong has been gas bombed on the beach by Carl Denham. Carl Denham is talking to his crew. He says, we're going to be rich boys. I'm going to share it with all of you. And, and then it cuts to the comedian. He says, you know, I can sort of believe uh, a lost island full of prehistoric animals and dinosaurs. I can, I can believe a 50-foot gorilla. But, hey, a producer that's going to share? I'm sorry. I draw the line there. That is that is pure fiction. <laughs> oh, that should have been in the movie, too. Oh, oh that's so cool. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to that that. Uh, documentary coming out on a DVD. It, it's. Yeah, just Google uh, "Long Live the King." 
Okay, long that's, that's the name of the Kong documentary. And you can probably see clips of it on uh, YouTube or on Facebook. I'll check that out tonight. Yeah. Um, I guess, Joe, how, what, what, how are we doing time-wise here? Because we don't know if we, we, if we're keeping you from anything. Or... Oh, no. I mean, it was, we've been – I'm hearing a weird echo for some reason. Huh. Is anybody else hearing that or no? Okay, there it stopped. No, um, yeah, we just been about an hour and eight minutes into it, yeah, because we yeah. definitely w didn't want to hold you up for too long. But uh, no, I mean, if there was so, any, I, I got I got so many more questions I wanted to ask you too. Yeah. Do I, do I dare ahead. ask you to come back at another time to do more discussions? Because I I still got you know all these questions here. Okay. I still even well, get asked. well, let's do that, and and I'll I'll bring some more pieces of art too to share that, that you guys love and see. So. Well, I definitely know I'm going to williamstout.com to order some stuff because Tyler was holding out on me. He wasn't telling me I didn't know about this. And I find out that Tyler's already this really cool um, – uh, I forgot the name of it. And I, I, I'm hoping – I'd love, love to have it. it. It came from the depths or it's um, – Oh, up from the depths. Up that's, from the depths, yes. I, have, I, and I, I love giant, you know, giant creatures eating people posters. I, I've always, ever since I was a kid – Seeing them in, in video stores, like the artwork was so fascinating. Oh, and wait I a second! Love that poster. It's, it's. I want to have it hanging up next to my Jaws poster. I got it all. Wait, I just got a question now. Wait, I mean, you have posters on your website as well? Oh yeah. Oh God, I'm telling you, these are. It's. Oh, you got to do those masters ones. Everything you just showed. I, I'm telling you, you put those posters. They will sell. I, I'm gonna be in line just to get whatever the heck you put up. I don't care. I'm getting them. We love wall posters. You got to. <laughs> The, the the problem problem is that if oh. I was to do that, then I would have to work out a deal with Mattel because I, I can't just start manufacturing masters of the universe stuff and selling it. They, they own that. Now I can, in the, in the context of a book, I can put all this stuff in a book. There's okay. di different rules for that. That's not considered exploitation. The book okay. is considered uh, by the United States government as a benefit to the public. So it falls under different rules, which is why, I did my blues book. It's called Legends of the Blues. It's 100 Portraits of My Favorite Blues Musicians Born Prior to 1920. And originally I did it as, as trading cards until I was informed by the guy who did Robert Crumb's music trading cards that, uh, no, that's considered uh, commercial exploitation. So I would have to get permission from each of the, the people that I had drawn to do that. And, and, but he suggested doing a book which does not fall under those things. Okay, well, I guess that could be, I mean, double goodness, because, you know, once you do the book, which obviously people would buy after the book, then do you think that could be a possibility of doing any deals with Mattel to make posters? Is that a possibility? Yeah, if Mattel plays nice. <laughs> I think they will. I mean, really, I think they would do, I think they would play nice. I mean, because especially, like I said, with the fans of wanting anything that comes out, mm -hmm. I think, I, at least I'd hope, you know, that's me being optimistic. You said how you're optimistic. That's what always Tyler says about me. I try to be optimistic all the time. So, mm -hmm. but, well, Tyler, I didn't know if you had any I, final um, questions for him or. Yeah. Um, I, Cause I, I told, I told Bill earlier, um, and I, I had learned this a little, a little while back that he is attached to the property diner riders as oh, a yeah. consultant. And uh, oh. I'm just curious because that was a, a cartoon and toy line I loved as a kid. And I, I just was curious about your, your, um, your, your part of, of that development, you know, was that doing concepts or making sure, cause you're such a dinosaur fan. So I, I didn't know if it was maybe following, you know, certain looks for the dinosaurs or, you know, what, what your, yeah. your part of that was. 
I hate to disappoint you. It's a pretty short story. Basically, uh, Dino writers called me up and they wanted to hire me as their paleontological expert on the, the series, which is fine. That's, that's great. I don't mind doing that at all. And uh, basically, what they really wanted is they wanted to have my name at the end of the show so that if any educational sources or if they got any flack about, hey, this not being an ed educational sh show, they can say, no, look, we had a paleontological expert on the on the phones. Now, initially, I took the job very seriously, and I would go through uh, their stories and their scripts and their designs and just basically correct it for factual stuff. Like, you know, you, you said this dinosaur is from the Cretaceous. It's actually from the Jurassic, so you just need to change that one word of dialogue. They didn't want to hear any of that. <laughs> they wanted me to leave them alone and just let my name go on the show so that if they got any flack that the series was not educational at all, they could point to my name and say, hey, no, we had the, an expert dinosaur guy on this. And so. Oh, wow. I was thinking <laughs> you had done designs of the T-Rex yeah. lasers oh, on them and stuff That's like what that. I was wondering. Oh. Now, now I, was, I was more involved with another series called Dink the Little Dinosaur uh, because for that one, I designed what are called bumpers. Uh, before it would go to a commercial, it would go to a bumper, and it would be like a, we, we call it Factosaurus, and it would be a little true fact about a particular dinosaur that was in that show, and I would illustrate it and and design it, and that they would show one of those uh, right before each commercial break. Okay, cool. Yeah. Well, I guess speaking of little dinosaurs, you did you illustrated the little blue brontosaurus? Is that correct? Right. Yeah, won the uh, Children's Choice Award for 1984 as best children's book, hmm. which uh, inevitably led to the Land Before Time. Well, yeah, that's that's where the Land Before Time came from. Is that? And, did you have any kind of inputs or, or work on the film, like because of the book? It was, I, I, I looked at some of your illustrations, and they look fairly close, you know, to yeah, it's really there. close. Yeah, yeah. So it's lawsuit design. close. It's lawsuit close. That's how close it was. Here's what happened. Uh, I was working uh, for Conan the Barbarian, uh, designing stuff uh, along with Ron Cobb for that film. And when we started there, we had this really bright receptionist. And after about two weeks of my being on the show, she got uh, a major promotion, and she became John Milius, our director, his personal assistant. And about two months after that, she became Steven Spielberg's personal assistant. And about two years after that, she produced E.T. That was Kathleen Kennedy. And I got, let's see, uh, I got contacted by uh, Jim Henson's daughter, Lisa Henson. Because Lisa, she wanted to do either a film or a miniseries on this epic fight between these two paleontologists, uh, Cope and Marsh. Uh, between these two guys, they discovered about 1,200 of the, the known dinosaurs. And she was trying to talk her father into producing it. And her father, Jim Henson, he was looking for his next, what he called, realistic Muppets film. He had done Dark Crystal. He had done Labyrinth. And he was looking for his third project which with the more realistic design. And so he said, hey, how about if I do a Muppets dinosaur film and then uh, we develop the technology in that that we can later use for your Cope and Marsh movie? 
And so she thought that was a great idea. So they were vacationing, I think it was in the Bahamas, and they were looking at all these different dinosaur books for inspiration. And their cook was delivering their lunch to them on the beach, and she looked at what they were looking at, and she said, huh, you think those are dinosaur books? I'll show you a dinosaur book. And she went back to the house, and she brought them out a copy of my book, The Dinosaurs, a Fantastic New View of a Lost Era. And they were looking through it, and it blew their minds. And then on the last page, there's my bio, and it, in my bio, it states I've been working in film. And they're like, wow, not only does this guy know dinosaurs, but he's already made movies. You don't have to explain anything to him. <laughs> And so awesome. Lisa promised Jim Henson, her dad, that uh, when she got back to L.A., she would call me and ask me about working on this film. And so uh, I got the call. It sounded great. And so I had a meeting with, with both Lisa and Jim. And at the basically the result of the meeting was, wouldn't it be really cool to do a great dinosaur movie? So we had another meeting a couple weeks later, and the same thing resulted. And I thought, boy, if I don't do something – get this project moving, it's, it's not going to do anything. So between then and the following meeting, I wrote a screenplay for the dinosaur film and, and brought it to them. They got real excited. They showed it to Warner Brothers. Warner Brothers gave us a, a big budget for the movie, including uh, $5 million, which at that time was a lot of dough, for just our uh, research on, on doing Muppet dinosaurs. So I began designing the film, and about that time, Henson found out that uh, Spielberg and Lucas were making The Land Before Time. And a friend of mine was, was visiting Kathleen Kennedy, who was the producer on that film, and he saw that she had my book, The Little Blue Brontosaurus, sitting on her desk. And that's, that's when I knew, hey, <laughs> something's amiss here. And uh, they claimed that they could get their film done a year before ours, which what turned out not to be true. But because of that, Jim Henson didn't want to look like he was knocking off Spielberg or Lucas, so he, he canceled the project. Oh. Ironically, of course, I got hired to do some of the advertising for The Land Before Time, sort of rubbing my nose in it. Oh, and, Lord. But then uh, it was uh, about a year or two later, I was working at Walt Disney Imagineering, designing theme parks for them. And Jim Henson was walking down the hall. He saw me in a meeting. He pulled me out of the meeting. He says, Bill, I've got great news. Our dinosaur project is back on. We're going to make it. And, and it's, it's really going to be fantastic. And I will call you next week. And the following week is when he died. Oh, Jesus. Gosh. So I'll never know what that meant, what, what turn of events had happened that he was reinterested in the dinosaur project again. What a Jesus! I mean, to start off this podcast with a kind of sad event, and then to end with a sad event—it's like, oh, wow! <laughs> Very I had no idea yeah. it was going in that direction. Okay, Tyler, just welcome, make, Mr. Gloom and Doom. <laughs> make him say something happy before we have to sign off until next time when he comes back. Um, hey, you got a good okay, here, here you uh, one of the greatest things about making Masters of the Universe was every day I'd be on set, and in the morning. I'd feel this little tug on my coat, and I'd turn around, and it'd be Billy Barty, you know, the guy who plays Goldor. Yeah. He'd have a new joke for me every single day. Was there a particular joke that you remember that he said maybe that was a really doozy? I'm really bad at remembering jokes, but Uh, it was so sweet. He he would search me out, he'd find me, and he'd tell me a new joke every morning. It It was just a great way to start the day. I like that. 
No, that's a good. That's Very a good. It's a good memory of Billy. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, he was cool. You know, he was in the Wizard of Oz. What? what which? Uh, I guess uh, obviously he, he was one of the baby munchkins that is hatching out of the egg. No kidding. Oh, really? I never knew is, that. Is he, is he visible in that in that shot? Because I know the shot you're talking about. Oh, yeah. Is he visible? Oh yeah. Yeah. To go back and look at that then. Yeah. That is so cool, man. Well, there's a little bit of a happier note here for to end this. Yeah, yeah. Um, he was a here. super, super fun guy to work with. And uh, I know you guys aren't in L.A. He was also a, a, a kitty show host here in L.A., Billy Barty Circus, they called it. And he would uh, he was the MC and he would show cartoons and stuff and have, you know, talk to kids. Was that like a local local TV show for kids? In there? Yeah. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah. I wonder if that's something that could be YouTubed maybe, possibly. Oh, maybe. Yeah, have to look for. I'll look that up after we do that. Wow, Bill, it's. Uh, I have to throw this out too. You got so many fascinating stories about the films you've worked on. Just hearing the story of the of of the land that your your connection to Land Before Time, mm-hmm. and you've worked on like Predator, which I, I would I would love to talk to you about your 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 working relationship with John McTiernan and that whole mm-hmm. development, the Conan films, Red Sonia, First Blood. I love I love we could do like a spinoff interview with you where you just talk about the films you've worked on for pop culture network you know yeah. it would be so cool to hear all these stories that you of these movies you've worked on next time i'll tell you the story of how i ruined the ending of predator oh that's oh, a good cliffhanger man. i like that that's a good cliffhanger oh, for the next one i gotta i gotta, I gotta hear that story. it had a great great ending originally <laughs> i look forward to that Ah, uh, yeah i like that all right that's yep. awesome well, uh, I guess we will wrap it up for our listeners here, okay. and um, we thank Bill for joining us again, and we will have a third installment, which is cool. fantastic to know. Yeah. So we- and I want to thank all the, the fans and listeners for showing up for this and watching this. It's uh, it's a real treat for me to be able to share some of the stories with you guys, and and uh, I, I still have really fond memories of that film. I'm very proud of Masters of the Universe. I think it, it turned out to be a nice movie. And just, we're, we're just quick. junkies for this stuff. I, mean, I just want to throw a quick shout out, uh, Tyler. Uh, on, in the YouTube chat room, Paul Rudman has been here for the whole show. Yes. And, uh, I love Paul Rudman. <laughs> and Paul says, first of all, Joe, you have to do a, a Cosmicy custom. Okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> but second of all, he says, print him a book and he'll, he'll send you the check right away. Okay. Um, but but his, his final downer note, though, is that he is pretty sure Mattel would not play nice. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm pretty sure that too from my past dealings with them. Yeah. Well, I hope they would, but uh, see, I'm telling you, you got fans out there. Like I said, that's whoever's watching. I mean, well, Paul watch it. He would want that book and mm-hmm. it would just, yeah, everybody would want this book. So we look forward to that and can't wait to find out when you have more information on that. For I us. know uh, a, a friend of mine who, who does you know, a lot of current He-Man artwork for some of the many comics for the new toy uh-huh. line. He's, he's inspired by some of your artwork that he's, He's thrown in Nas to your Snake Mountain and some of the many oh, comics cool. that he's done. Oh, Max man. Is. Oh, I should pick and, up uh, those comics and take a take a peek. Oh, yeah. Because yeah. uh, was... I've, I've got them, and I just didn't notice it. And then after we posted your first interview, he he posted the pictures, which I completely missed. And I'm like, yeah, your your Skeletor throne room, he drew a nice little nod to it. Oh, cool. As well as, um, I think, the um, the uh, the uh, the painting of, of Skeletor's um, – uh, the room with the pillars and, and Kark and his lineup of, of bodyguards. There's a, a nod to that uh-huh. in there. So he's he, he's he's a big fan of your artwork. So he, he's th- he's throwing in some nods 
just to, to help honor what you what you have done and what we could have got too. So. Oh, that's cool. Well, thanks. Well, along those same lines, uh, while I was uh, designing Masters of the Universe at my studio, uh, I had two other artists working there: uh, Richard Hescox, who was painting paperback covers, and Paul Chadwick. Paul Chadwick uh, created the comic book character Concrete, and I would come in, you know, take breaks, come to the studio. And, and tell them the stories of all the stuff that was going on. Cause it was, it was a pretty wild set and working for Canon films is never dull. Well, if you pick up this series of concrete stories that Paul did, he has concrete working on a film called rulers of the omniverse. And he incorporated a whole bunch of my stories into that. And I appear there. I, 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 he doesn't call me by name, but I'm the guy that looks like me wearing the Hawaiian shirt in the strip. I'm <laughs> I like that. And I like it. it's really worth seeking out because Paul's a great comic book writer and artist. And uh, it was really funny to me to see his version of Masters of the Universe being made in that comic book. But as rulers of the omniverse. I like that. I have to look, look, look that out. That's, that's really cool. Yeah. All right. Well, yeah, we definitely look forward to having you back again for, well, of course, the cliffhanger with the Predator story, yeah. whatever other, uh, you know, pieces of art you might bring and show us for, you know, like exclusives. And of course, hearing all the other great stories that you have, because uh, it seems like the stories you have are endless and could just keep going nonstop. <laughs> yep. Yeah, you'll have to hear uh, my favorite story, which is why the United States Air Force did not cooperate in the making of invaders from Mars. Oh, that uh, that's very interesting. We got two cliffhangers. <laughs> All right, it's killing us here. Well, uh, I guess we will wrap it up. And uh, okay. Bill, uh, I guess um, fans can go to your store or, and and um, get in touch with you that way. Is that yep. uh, okay? Um, Joe, anything else you want to say before we sign off here? No, just pretty much. Uh, well, obviously, just a pleasure having you on. I mean, it, we look forward to it so much every time that you're going to join us. And, and we really appreciate you sharing all your stories, all this you know, information with all the fans out there. And uh, yeah, again, thank you. And yes, everybody go to williamstown.com, see what kind of stuff he has, because I know I'm going to be going there probably tonight. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Bill, for joining us again. We, we look forward to the third installment. Okie dokie. And guys, don't forget, you can leave a voicemail on our 24-hour voicemail line. It's area code 217-953-4025. Thanks for watching.